Welcome to Mornings with Mubaraka, your Wednesday morning voice where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Also streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. I am so happy this morning to have a very special guest of mine. Um, I have followed uh, um, Yvonne on social media for several years, and she is the queen of halal cooking. Now, if you know me at all, you know that or have listened to me at any point, you know that I'm sort of kind of a foodie. I exercise because I like to eat. So I am excited about having Yvonne on the show. Yvonne is the founder and the brain behind MyHalalCooking.com, which is a halal cooking foodie blog. And she has just released her book, My Halal Kitchen, which is a collection of delicious recipes. Like, I am so excited not just to only have you on, Yvonne, but also to... um, get to cooking. So welcome and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited about your show. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. So let's talk a little bit about how you began to uh, be the halal kitchen foodie person for everybody to go to. You, you did not start off that way, correct? That you you, you, you Did you go to culinary school? Was this, when did this love for food come about for you? Um, I was pretty young. I, I think I, the, the memory I have is being around 10 or 11 years old when um, I just started pretty much getting fascinated with different types of foods and produce. My parents were both really into um, trying new things and really into grocery shopping (laughs) and being fascinated with what's around, you know, flea markets, supermarkets, um, orchards around our our neighborhood, uh, and then travel. And so I think it just um, brought the beauty home um, just by being fascinated by natural things um, and, you know, food products and nature. And then as I got a little older, they encouraged me to try experimenting in the kitchen. But both sides of my family um, were big foodies. I mean, my dad's side is Sicilian and my mom's side is Puerto Rican. So can you imagine the food that was around? <laughs> you know, I was, um, I was and, just thinking that when you come from a very rich culture of food, like those are probably mm-hmm. two on the, on, on the pedestal of foodie cultures. Those are two of like probably the top <laughs> five right there. So what, now yeah. tell me a little bit about, so that's an interesting mix. So what was dinners like at your house growing up? Well, dinner was, uh, my mom cooked a lot of different things and she just, she was just interested in, um, just different foods. I mean, she, she would make French food, Greek food, Italian food. She was really a good Italian cook, although she's the Puerto Rican one. <laughs> um, and she had lots of different cookbooks and magazines. She was always trying something new. Um, so, so at home it was experimental. I think that was important for me because it meant that you know, the, the world of food wasn't closed off with just uh, Italian or Puerto Rican food or even just American stuff. It was 
it was wide open and that appreciation was there. Because when I went to my grandparents or my extended family, it was very traditional and cultural. So I feel like I got the best of both. I got the tradition and then I got the experimentation, which is really important if you want to be in food because you, you need to be open-minded, um, but you also need to understand the fundamentals and basics of, of some traditional cooking because that's the base of, of, of all you know great dishes, especially you know, when I'm looking at Italian cuisine. You have to know the fundamentals of it, I guess, to appreciate you know all the flavors that, that make it what it is. Um, and later on, I, I started traveling a lot more, went abroad, and I think that just expanded my, not just my vision of food, but my passion. I was really, really, um, it just made me super interested in, in how people cook around the world and then how to bring that home to share the travel experiences with family and friends. That was really exciting to me. It was one of my favorite things to do, you know, to learn a recipe from a, from a woman in you know, Mexico or Spain who had, you know, and met at the market or something and, and then try that the recipe at home, you know, I still love doing that, but it started very young. And I think I'm really lucky that I was able to have that experience at such an early age because I knew I wanted to be in food, but um, to have the hands-on stuff is, is critical. So th- you knew... So no culinary school. <laughs> so you knew you wanted to be in food, so why not culinary school? Well, I I did try to go several times, and um, I guess, well, my parents were more interested in me finishing traditional school, you know, college. They, uh, I, I asked them many times and they said, you know, go to law school or do something else first and see if it's something you really want to do. So the test was there. Um, I did go to grad school. I, I finished my undergrad, went to grad school and finished in international studies, um, focusing on journalism and education and business. And so <clears throat> the, the idea was to, to get a stable job and then if the passion for cooking was there, we'll, you know, figure it out. Um, so <laughs> the idea I had was to, to write about food, you know, I'll just, I'll really try to, to write about food or maybe teach English as a second language. I mean, I was always looking for a way to feel my passion. It mm-hmm. just really wasn't in corporate. It wasn't in law, you know, the things that I thought I would do. I just couldn't do it. I, I could not do it. And so everything I was doing, um, I did my, my side hustle before internet, the internet really, uh, was popular. I was start, trying to write for magazines, travel magazines and food magazines. I would knock at their doors and say, you know, can I write for you? How can I write for you? Um, take classes in travel writing and food writing. And it was, I knew it was the burning desire, but it was so, so difficult before blogs came about. Mm-hmm. So, so you started your blog in 2008. Mm-hmm. And when you yeah, I started in go ahead, go ahead. I started it in two thousand eight, um, mainly because I, I think my radar had been up for so long, knowing that I wanted to write for these uh, magazines and, um, you know, just to get your foot in the door was was so hard. And so when I saw the blogs uh, being available, I'm like, well, I don't have to wait anymore. I can just do this myself. I had taken some culinary classes. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever I could. I mean, I did what I could to, to combine the two, writing and food. Um, but then the blog, the blog was this opportunity to take everything I had learned and just start writing. And when you can publish yourself, well, that had never happened in history. Mm. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so I really, 
yeah, I just said at that point, this was a sign to, to go forward and I quit my teaching. I was a teacher at the time. I, I finished out the year, quit, and then I just, I knew that my entire focus was going to be this. And at the time, I, I had been a new Muslim for a few years, so I didn't grow up um, eating halal. I didn't grow up um, as a Muslim. And so I knew as well that this was a niche, a niche um, food industry that was not being talked about. Mm. So it was like, a, it, was a, it was good timing, but it was also um, authentic passions coming through as well as the timing. So, you know, when you have a mix of all that, I think you're, you're sort of on the right track. <laughs> So I so what I found to be um really what I what I liked about um reading the introduction to your book is that you talked about how you had non-Muslim friends and family who didn't know a lot about halal food and they were curious about what it was and then there was also Muslims who were curious about the taste of cultural and ethnic foods, but was afraid to venture that way because they ate halal or could not venture into the food, into a, say traditional um, um, restaurant or culinary experience because it was not halal. And so you m- decided to merge the two of those things. I thought that was absolutely genius because I have to tell you one of the, uh, so I, I eat halal um, and uh, mm-hmm. I eat zabiha as well. <laughs> so, um, and we'll explain those terms in a little bit. So when I, and I also, in addition, I love to travel. <laughs> and one of the, the, the things that I am often kind of like sighing about when we go to Jamaica or Mexico, Costa Rica, is that I can't eat the, try the true culinary experience because it's not halal. Mm. So to merge those two would be it is awesome to have that be able to have that experience. And you can't have someone. I can't go to Costa Rica and say, "Hey, here's the meat. Can you cook your traditional dish for me?" So I so I'm excited right. about <laughs> trying the recipes in here because I'm like, okay, maybe I can make it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have some advice for that because I was just in Mexico last week and. Uh, I think uh, there's a workaround that. Learn a little bit of Spanish, take some of the ideas from the book in the Latin cuisine chapter and make your own recipe <laughs> because that's what I did. I yeah. asked them, you know, um, if there was any lard in the beans or the chips or anything like that. And if there was, you know, could they make it without it? And they were so accommodating. And I kind of just took the menu and, and made up my own recipes and I mean, not too far off the mark, but mm-hmm. you know, you get the idea. And they were they were very gracious too. Oh, to okay. Make some fabulous food. So, so uh, you can use some of the the tips in the in the book because I do talk about eating out mm-hmm. in the book uh, for different cuisines. So, um, so it's it's totally possible if the people are accommodating and. Usually in places like that, they are. So that was the extra push <laughs> that I needed. I've been to uh, my husband and I do an annual couples retreat in Costa Rica. And every year I say I that. that I am going to brush up on my Spanish. I, I took like four years of Spanish in school, but I know very little. or I remember very little. <laughs> so I keep telling myself uh-huh. I'm going to brush up on my Spanish because when we go back in August, I'm going to be able to have a conversation. So now... I have a true motivation. Yes. I can eat more food <laughs> if I can tell them what not to put in it. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> That's take, a good motivation. Take the book with you or, or take, you know, snapshots of it. And, uh, you know, just, you just have to know some of the, the food words. That's okay. all. Like okay. Manteca means lard. <laughs> Say no manteca. <laughs> okay. And they're pretty good about that. Okay, yeah, good, so good. you can make your own recipes up. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. This is Mornings with Mubaraka, and we are talking to Yvonne of MyHalalKitchen.com and her new book that is a combination of, um, would I be um, proper in describing it as Cultural cuisine with a halal that are that's halal or with a halal twist. Yeah, I would say global. Yeah, global cuisine. How to make anything halal? I think it's a, a book that's almost like a reference book that every person who's interested in halal cooking would need in their kitchen because the recipes are foundational um, in their technique in terms of how to substitute for pork and different types of alcohol. So. If you look at a recipe in a magazine and you figure, oh, I can't make it because it has white wine, but you can use the charts in the book. You can use um, uh, recipe ideas in the book for the substitute. So I really hope it's the book that people will use to build on their other recipe ideas or, you know, Food Network. They're watching something on Food Network and say, oh, that looks so great. I said I can't make it. But they can go to the book, open it up and see, oh, what suggestions does she have for something like that? So that was my my intention for it. Excellent, excellent. So I am going to read, and I know we have a lot of curious listeners that is like, well, what is halal? And you're trying to okay. put it all together. So I'm going to read the definition of halal you have in your book. So halal is an Arabic term meaning permissible that addresses everything from food to finance to dress, as well as actions and interactions among people in society. Muslims believe that what is prescribed in the Quran as halal is the word of God and thus must be obeyed and perceived as good for all rather than as limiting or restrictive without benefit. So that is a general definition of what is the what Muslims refer to the term as halal. So tell us um, how you define halal in your book. How in terms Um, of food, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like you, you mentioned it perfectly, you know, what is permissible is an Arabic term, but Muslims that speak any language will understand what halal means as permissible, meaning the, the types of foods that we uh, are prescribed to eat coming from Quran and, and Sunnah or, or um, the sayings of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, but I go a little further as well and talk about Sayyid, which Sayyid is also an Arabic word that means wholesome or pure. Um, I go I go into that because I feel like that's the whole picture. And we're so focused sometimes on what animal we're eating. So a halal animal can be you know, chicken, goat, lamb, beef. Um, but, but what about the way it was raised and, and the, what that animal is eating? And, and how are we taking care of these creatures that are under our care? Um, before they even get to the point of being processed for food. So, you know, that's a it's a common uh, concept in today's food world, which I love, you know, clean eating, conscious eating, conscious living. But that's deeply rooted in Islam anyway. And I think we, we as halal consumers, really need to pay attention a lot more to 
Uh, not that something just has a halal label on it, certified halal, that's all great and good, but I want to see things um, being checked before that even, you know, gets to a processing plant. I want us to, you know, really pay attention to what we're doing to the environment, how we're caring for these animals. I mean, if you're, you're just looking at it from a purely consumeristic point of view, well, that does affect our bodies and, and, you know, what we put into it. But that spiritual side of it is so important. And we need to, you know, realize that how we are treating the animals and the environment and the people who work to bring that to us also comes back to us in a spiritual sense. So I, I hope that, you know, that opens up the conversation. I know I've had some great discussions with people when talking about the book about that. Um, but that was, that was a big intention of mine too, to dig that out and to you know open it up for discussion and, you know, when we, when we know better, when we're reminded, we can do better. Mm, so uh, one of the things that I noticed um, in your bio, in your book, is that you are, that's a great segue until my next question, which is you're pursuing the creation of a working organic farm. Tell me a little bit about how that, how that came along and where you are in the process. Yeah, well, a few years back, I moved to a, a four-acre property, um, and the intention was to sort of, not necessarily be off the grid, but the intention was to um, really grow my own produce and uh, make an environment that was purely organic, uh, clean, uh, safe place for the bees. You know, those are, they're dying in many places. And um, I wanted a place that was a sanctuary for for wildlife, but um, something that could produce the food that I eat. and that I can cook with. I mean, I think those are, I'm always cooking. I'm always in the kitchen. I'm always putting something on the table that um, I feel is beautiful and I try to be as healthy as possible, but it can get pricey. And so I really wanted to have that in my backyard. I mean, I've always, it's always a dream of mine um, to do. And it's a lot more work than people realize. I mean, I think it's something that a lot of people want to do and it's sort of a pipe dream, but it is, it is so hard, and I think um, that shows where we really need to start appreciating our local farmers, or not even our local farmers, just all farmers. They have the hardest job. And so when you grow something, then you put it on the table, you don't want to waste it because you realize the energy and the time and the care and the investment that was put into, you know, just a simple carrot. It's, yeah. it's really mind-blogging. So getting closer to the earth, closer to the land is just really important to me. And um, I, I, I just love being outside and I love being digging in the ground and the earth. So, so um, big though, four acres is, is a little big for a couple people. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'll be tweaking some things, there. <laughs> but, um, but the concept is, is, uh, is really important to me. And, and I encourage everybody to have, some kind of garden doesn't have to be like that, but you know, even even a balcony garden is possible. Now, do you plan on um, in your in your organic working farm? Is it going to be something that you're going to um, just do personally, or is it? Are you going to be are you going to be selling organic um, fruits and vegetables? What What's your plan for it? Well, it was the plan was for it to be experimental at first. Um, <clears throat> So that I could just figure out what works. Um, I don't. I don't see selling produce and things like that as something that I would probably do. 
Um, cause we need a lot of people to grow it and, um, harvest it and so on. So, you know, it's still, there's still some big question marks, but, uh, like I said, I'll probably be tweaking some things and, uh, I'll keep people updated. I haven't really written much about it because it's been so, so, so much work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's left me a little time to write about it, but I, I do hope to kind of have some, some, you know, knowledge to share for people who want to sell everything they have in the city and go. <laughs> 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 some, is that what you, is that, that what you did? You just moved from the city to the country. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of felt like, you know, with that, that show Green Acres. I felt like, you know, laying <laughs> in the back of the pickup truck. Jaja, was it? <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, that and so do you, what, what about like. animals though? Do you, do you have animals? Do you have chickens or, or, or anything? Well, our neighbors, our neighbors have a bunch of things. So we were pretty much surrounded by, by animals, but the yard itself just <laughs> attracted so many wild animals. I mean, I've seen a family of deer, like five or six deer. I've seen coyotes. Um, you name it. Are you keeping any animals? I don't know. Or, or I should say, are you harvesting the deer? No, not <laughs> no. No, no, not yet. You, I mean, there is a hunting season, but I'm not, I'm not that brave uh, to do that myself. I just have my cat inside and she's not allowed outside because she'd probably be a snack for them. So. <laughs> Do you plan um, on maybe so having chickens or anything like that? Or, or Yeah. So well, I did, I did plan on having chickens and ducks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you really have to have all the, uh, the housing in place. So I had a garden plan. Everything was laid out, um, you know, and the chickens are kind of part of the corner of that garden. <laughs> Um, uh, so, so we'll see. It, it does take some time, you know, um, inside of the house, you, you did a lot of work. And so there's, there's definitely, um, you know, more than meets the eye with these kinds of things. So, uh, we'll see what happens. I'll keep, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> now, now you have children. What did they think of the move? No, I don't have any. Oh, kids. you don't have children. No. Oh, okay, okay, okay. No. <laughs> All right, no. so that made it look just a tad no, bit easier. No, this is why I had time to write books. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is why I had time to write books and experiment with farming. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. My, my, my yeah. mistake. Well, I... maybe if I had kids, then I would have more labor. <laughs> <laughs> you have more workers, free workers. But, um, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah. so tell me, um. You you mentioned earlier that you uh, just came back from Mexico and you were able to um, to to to, to um, ask them to make certain dishes halal. In your travels, mm-hmm. is that something that's common? That's common. Can you do that pretty much at in, in any country that you go to, or do you do that? Um, and do you find that most places are are um, accommodating? I think Mexico is one of the most accommodating countries I've ever visited. They're just phenomenal when it comes to tourists and uh, I try not to be so difficult, but I know when you explain something, I can speak the language fluently. So it's easier for me to say, you know, it's not because I don't like your menu. It's because I'm kind of concerned. I have a dietary restriction. So um, they're really accommodating. And I kind of just try to gauge the, the situation, the, um, you know, the, the place I'm eating, but I find in most countries, actually, even here in the States, it really just depends on the, the, the restaurant you go to, the, the, the approach you have with the waiters and, um, if they're even able to do that. But I think 
you know, kindness goes a long way. Smiling goes a long way. Trying in their language goes a long way. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't actually been out of the country as a Muslim except for Mexico. So I have, I couldn't tell you about the other places, but um, all of those places I talked about, I actually went before I was Muslim. So hopefully in the next year or so I'll be traveling more and I'll, I'll see how it goes <laughs> in some places. But I think, you know, people are people everywhere. And um, like I said, it's just a matter of explaining yourself and being as nice as possible. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all human. And I think if we can communicate that somehow, you know, that it's not to offend, but it's just because of our diet, then most people are really just so much more, more than understanding. So, so one of the, one of the things I'm, I'm flipping through your book here, I have it here in the office and um, I am looking at the vanilla extract. So this has been like an ongoing back and forth thing for me on my, on my um, Facebook fan page, trying to find like a good uh, alternative <laughs> to uh, vanilla extract. And I brought one and it was like, Oh, I'm so excited. I found it. It was, uh, it says non-alcoholic. And then you turn around on, on the back and it's like 5% alcohol. So <laughs> I yeah. am excited to yeah, try this a as lot. a part of, yeah, as a part of my, as a part of my baking, but let's talk a little bit about some of the ingredients that when people, I think for non-Muslims who know just a little bit about halal, they just think that Muslims can't eat pork, right? And can't drink alcohol. Yeah. And so it's think it's, it's not completely understood as to some of the other things and other ingredients that can be in food that is also makes the food not halal. What are some of the, 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 the things that, are common, but is not commonly known? Oh, so one of the most common ingredients that aren't, isn't very commonly known is uh, something called L-cysteine, uh, but it's also known as dough conditioner. Um, and that is commonly used in bread, pie crust, baked goods um, to soften the dough, especially when there's large volumes of a, a, pro- a product being made, so massively produced bread and things like that. Well, the problem with it is that it comes from human hair. Mm. <laughs> Don't ask me how that. Well, I do. I do understand the manufacturing of it now, but um, how in the world did they get hair to turn into this product? That I wouldn't you know, know who thought about that. Food? Who decided, like, hmm, let me take this hair up my brush. I wonder if I can eat this. Right? <laughs> is there something exactly. in here? Exactly, <laughs> and that's what I tell people. I say, you know, we don't. We we wouldn't think of it, right? But people who are in food. Uh, science or food technology, this is what they do. They come up with ways to uh, have a, a consequential, consequential effect on food texture. Um, so they're looking for things in the environment that will help them do that. And uh, human hair is one of them. And China is a big manufacturer of that. They get the hair from typically from India and they put, process it in China and these processing plants and then it's sold as elsticine that's put in your food as a dough conditioner. You so when you're eating out, you don't know if the bread you're eating, unless it's made naturally, um, has it. And I, you know, I've asked waiters, you know, can you tell me what's in this? And they'll say, well, I don't know. You know, it's just a few things. But then you look at the label and it says dough conditioner. And if you don't know, it can be a synthetic, which would be, I guess, fine, but not, not. I mean, my ideally, I don't like synthetic things in my food, but but it could become, it could come from hair. So it's pretty gross, you know. Mm. I mean, 
for that. There's wood pulp is used quite a bit in things like boxed foods, like um, like maybe like a macaroni and cheese or things like that. And that's you know that's wood pulp like stuff. from trees, like wood yes. wood. Really, yes. it's used yeah. in the macaroni. Yeah. It could be. It could be a part of the you know the the packet that. And what uh, is it labeled to... as? What is it called in the ingredients? Um, cellulose. Okay, I read an article a couple of weeks ago about cellulose inside of Parmesan cheese. And it was it was an article that was saying that some brands were actually using more cellulose than actual cheese. And their reason for it is Mm -hmm. that they say that it prevents it from clumping. I guess it's an anti caking measure. Yeah, caking. Anti-caking agent, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yes. Wow, yes. that's interesting. So, you know the way I, the way I fix this is just by going as natural as possible. Mm. I know that the natural stuff tends to be more expensive, but in reality, we need. You know, we we use less. I mean, and you're all about fitness, right, and portion mm. control. And I think that you know you'd agree that it wouldn't hurt us to eat less of things, right? Instead Absolutely. of having this huge, enormous jar of parmesan cheese with anti-caking agent in it maybe we get the the natural uh wheel of cheese or like a slice of that wheel of cheese and just grate it ourselves we have a natural product uh you know what i mean i think we we're we're, we become such lazy consumers out of convenience and i get it we're busy we're so busy but you know when people talk about gaining weight and feeling feeling not so great i say well it, it's it's not just how you eat, it's what you eat. It's not just what you Absolutely. eat, it's how you eat. It's like this vicious cycle that we're getting into that um, we're not realizing, we're not being conscious enough about what we're putting in our mouth and when and why and all of that. Are we sitting down as a family? Do we have a, a time that we're trying to eat every day? You know, are we, you know, even make, make shopping an experience. I mean, I, I was at a lecture on Friday in Dallas where Sheikh Marshall Neman appeared in one of the, it was about business, but one of the things he said was, make everything you do a spiritual experience. And I thought about that in terms of food, that one of the reasons why people absolutely love the European lifestyle and they, you know, really tout the French and Italians for their love of life is, if you think about it, when it comes to food, for them, it is a spiritual experience. It's something we don't take up, I think, enough in America, unless you're maybe in food. And so why can't everybody do that where we're sitting down with food and we should do that as Muslims, right? Anyway, we should look at it as with all this gratitude and awe. I mean, if you look at the food on your plate and it's all natural, how in the world did it get there? You know, subhanAllah. I think we just need to be so much more conscious of things and that will change our lives, Mm. quite honestly. Absolutely. I, I, I cannot agree with you more. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio, also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. And this is Mornings with Mubaraka. And today we are talking about halal food with Yvonne, the founder of myhalalkitchen.com and the writer of uh, My Halal Kitchen, which is a book of global recipes, cooking tips, and lifestyle inspiration. And we are talking about healthy eating, global cuisine, and halal. So when we, ta- when we um, t- 
talk about halal food in general, we're not just talking about how the meat is prepared, but we're talking about the entire experience. And so I, I love this conversation because we really did encompass kind of like the cycle of what we need to view food from the care of the animals to how they're slaughtered to what is put in on in the food that we cook and how we consume it. Um, whether we're doing it together as a family, whether you're actually making it an experience and creating a spiritual experience from that. Um, give me a little bit of, give me a little bit of insight onto how um, non-Muslims are responding to your book and your, in this wonderful initiative to introduce halal food to everyone. Well, I'm, I'm really, really uh, happy to see that people um, who come to any programs that I have about the book, um, they come with a really open mind. And um, after explaining not just the, the halal part, which is the sort of ritual part, and then the dayan part, which is the more spiritual part, you know, really getting into the mechanics of both, um, I feel everything is, it has been positive so far. And people, you know, the feedback has been, we love the transparency of halal. We love the the fact that um, so much is, is looked at in terms of where the animal is coming from, how it is processed, and um, the cleanliness aspect. You know, people really love um, that, uh, you know, certain care is taken to make sure things are clean. Um, and so that is, is, you know, lifting the veil, so to speak, on this sort of foreign word for most people. So I'm really happy to you know, be able to, to talk about that and answer all their questions. And, you know, people certainly have some thoughts in their mind that they may have heard from someone who said something. You know, so it's really important to clarify all of that. What's the biggest and misconception so far, so that you, what's the bi- biggest misconception that you've come into? Um, I think sometimes people believe that we dedicate the animal to Muhammad, and uh, that's absolutely not true. You know, we don't do that. We 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 might we will say Bismillah in the name of God upon the slaughter, but that's you know when I explain that that is because the, the animal is a sacrifice for our nourishment, and that sacrifice is in the name of God only and not dedicated to any other gods. Then that's cleared up pretty well and they're okay with that you know that it's not some uh cult ish type of you know sacrifice i mean i think it's it's important to not disregard people's misconceptions and thoughts because this is the point of talking about it is you know to eradicate any kind of uh you know false notions of it um to you know so so that those are kind of some of that but also um about the slaughter itself, you know, why we do the things we do, how humane is it? We really talk about that a lot. And I'm glad to talk about that because we, we need to have our, the emphasis on animal humaneness and treatment of the animals um, at every step of the cycle, you know, for, for that. And um, so so those things are really important. I think uh, for me, no question is, is, is off limits. And um, I like to operate that way because I want people to walk away feeling that they really got a good grasp of understanding. And that, uh, and then when they taste the food, they're like, wow, we know we can really taste the difference. And I find that always fascinating because I've been eating halal for so long that uh, I don't know, you know, the difference anymore. I just know that the meat is 
pretty darn good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, from a chef standpoint, the tenderness of me, the quality, all of that, I think that, you know, they can, they can really see those kinds of things, you know, but your average consumer is looking just the taste, you know, does it, does it taste good? Um, so that's, those are very good positive things that I've seen so far. That, you know, that's actually one of the most common uh, comments that I hear when I um, meet a non-Muslim friend at one of the halal restaurants in town. We we are blessed to have lots of halal. I don't know if that's a good thing or not so good thing. We have lots of halal options here. We have halal fast food like fried chicken and pizza. We also have sit-down restaurants Yum. like a Turkish restaurant. <laughs> and we have my halal guys and we have Indian food. We have lots of options of halal uh, restaurants. New Haven is known for its restaurants and the Muslims were, have not been left out in that process. <laughs> so that's awesome. That's wonderful. I need to come. <laughs> yes, you certainly do. When you come, we you got to stay for a couple of days because we're going to have to hit a couple of the restaurants. We got a lot of them now. <laughs> we have at least about, yeah. I don't know, 12, yeah. 15 restaurants that are halal. So <laughs> we got to hit nice. a couple of them. Um, we, we'll have to uh, do, we have to do like a hike or something so that we can like have one restaurant for lunch and then another for dinner. <laughs> That's our plan when you <laughs> yeah, come. That's our you. plan. <laughs> so, um, and that know. is one of the, um, one of the comments that I do often hear is that, um, wow, this is tastes so good. It tastes so tender and it's so fresh, even for people who are just people who like food, not just chefs. So that, and that, and I was born Muslim, and so I've always eaten halal. So like you, I like I don't know the difference between what's not halal, like that halal tastes better. Um, so uh, fortunately, I I guess I've always eaten very tender fresh meat. <laughs> um, yeah. So I so I want to do a couple of things as we come to the end of the show. So anyone who follows me on social media, you know that we had a comp we had a, a giveaway on the Fit Muslima fan page, and if you shared the live that I did yesterday, you um I have a a over 100 people to choose from who shared the video to win a free copy of My Halal Kitchen by Yvonne. And the winner is Treasure Wyndham. I am going to comment on your post and you are you send me your mailing address and congratulations and enjoy. Make sure when you cook these delicious recipes in Yvonne's book that you tag the Fit Muslim fan page so that we can see your delicious meals. So congratulations, treasure. And I will let you know that you won. So that's awesome. So Yvonne, tell us where people can purchase your book. So the book is uh, available on Amazon and also at um, barnesandnoble.com and booksamillion.com, but also in select Barnes and Noble and Books a Million stores. If uh, you have international uh, readers or uh, sorry, audience uh, members on your show, they can try to get it from Amazon in their countries, or they can talk to a local bookseller and ask uh, for the um, distributors to to bring it into the store. Excellent. And how can people connect with you? Is your blog the the best way? for them to do that or is Facebook the best way? Which is the best way for people to connect with you? So I'm all over the place. <laughs> I'm on my website at myhellokitchen.com. Uh, I also answer 
messages on my Facebook page at My Hello Kitchen by Yvonne Maffei. And then on Instagram at My Hello Kitchen, Twitter at My Hello Kitchen. Um, yeah, those are the, the main places I am. So, so okay, so she, she's you can if it. you put in my halal kitchen on Google, you will find her everywhere, <laughs> right? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to so. so. thank you so much for joining me, Yvonne. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I am going to make some of these recipes and tag you because I'm excited. Especially, Aww. I'm like I'm really excited when I saw that vanilla extract. I, I've been struggling with that for a week. <laughs> Yeah, you just need a month to let it cure, and then you okay. got you can have vanilla, orange, lemon. There's all kinds of different flavors in there. Uh, the ingredient, but, uh, the the only so thing much. I have to go and get is the glycerin, the vegetarian glycerin. Glycerin, but yeah. That is on my grocery yeah. list. Thank you so much. I appreciate oh, you good. calling You're in. Welcome. It right. lasts for like a year, so enjoy. <laughs> Excellent. But thank you for having me. Thank you so much, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka. This is our last live show for the end of the year. Can you believe 2017 is almost here? But I want you to tune in next week. We are going to have a repeat of our show on healthy lifestyles with Dr. David Katz. Um, and I want to thank you for joining me. This is Mubaraka Ibrahim reminding you to be a voice and not an echo.